Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Sarah Ann Minkin, and I'm the Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. This episode of Occupied Thoughts consists of a webinar we held earlier today, December 13th, 2022, entitled Born of Fire, New Writing from and About Gaza. All of the links that you'll hear us talking about are posted on the FMAP website. Just look up our events, go to the events index, and look for Born of Fire. You'll find the links on that page. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello and welcome. I'm Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Welcome to Born of Fire, Writings from and About Gaza. Today is December 13th, 2022. The American Friends Service Committee, AFSC, and Haymarket Press, Haymarket Books, have just published a new anthology, Light in Gaza, Writings Born of Fire. This remarkable book, and it truly is remarkable, here it is. This remarkable book features personal narratives and political essays from Palestinians in Gaza and from Gaza. What they're doing is, and I'm quoting, imagining the future of Gaza beyond the cruelties of occupation and apartheid. Haymarket Books says of this collection, now I'm quoting again, as political discourse shifts towards futurism as a means of reimagining a better way of living beyond the violence and limitations of colonialism, light in Gaza is an urgent and powerful intervention into an important political moment. My colleague is putting a link to Haymarket Books homepage for the book, including options of how to purchase it so you too can read it. I can't recommend it highly enough. So today we are joined by two of the anthology's editors and one of the contributing authors to talk about this project of imagining the future. One key element is amplifying voices from Gaza as a counter to Israel's ongoing siege and the general marginalization and isolation of Gaza and its residents. So I am delighted and very grateful to be here today with Doram Abu Salim, a communications and media professional who works at the intersection of journalism, international affairs, and communications. Doram holds a master's of international affairs from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. Thank you for being here. We are also joined by Jihad Abu Salim, the Education and Policy Coordinator of the Palestine Activism Program at AFSC, and a graduate student completing his PhD in the History and Hebrew and Judaic Studies Joint Program at New York University. And Jihad is a 2022 Palestinian non-resident fellow at FMEP, for which we are very grateful. And finally, we have Jennifer Bing, who directs the AFSC's Palestine Activism Program in Chicago, and works with her colleagues in Palestine and Israel. Jennifer has worked at AFSC since 1989, serving in various capacities in its programs, organizing hundreds of speaking tours, conferences, workshops, advocacy campaigns, and educational programs about Palestine and the Middle East. Thank you all so much for being here. Jennifer and Jihad are two of the editors of this anthology. The third is Mike Merriman Lotsey and Doram is a contributor to it. So Jennifer, I wanna start with you. You co-edited this volume. It includes 16 essays and poems from 12 Palestinian writers. 
Will you please tell us about this book? What is AFSC's goal with it? Why did AFSC decide to publish a book on Gaza and why now? Great, yeah, thank you, Sarah. And it's uh, great to see some familiar names in the participant window uh, and always wonderful to join Doram and Jihad in conversation about this book. Um, well, uh, people may know that the American Friends Service Committee first engagement with Palestinians in Gaza actually happened in 1948-1949 uh, when Quakers were asked to come and uh, help with the refugees that were um, flooding into to Gaza at that time. So we, as an organization and as Quakers, have had this long um, connection to people in Gaza, and um, so. Part of uh, part of our efforts have been to shift U.S. policy um, and about Gaza and about Palestine in general. And uh, one way that we do that is to bring people who are impacted by U.S. policies to the United States to tell their stories and and talk about the impact on their lives. And in uh, 2020. Uh, we were anticipating bringing a speaking tour with Palestinians from Gaza to the U.S. We had done that in the previous uh, two years um, as, as a way of breaking the isolation. A lot of people can't go to Gaza because of the blockade, and a lot of Palestinians from Gaza can't leave because of the blockade. But we'd, we've had some success in, in bringing people out of Gaza. So that's what our good plan was in 2020. And then the pandemic uh, happened. And uh, we decided to kind of pivot from a speaking tour to creating a book. So um, Jihad and um, our other colleague, Mike merriman Lotz and myself decided, let's let's make an anthology. Let's 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 put a book together. And Actually, none of us had ever done that before. Uh, so we um, brought together an editorial team of academics and people who have published, uh, Tark Bakoni, Sarah Roy, and Lesh, and Steve Tamari. Uh, and with them, um, we launched into this um, COVID project um, of um, making a call for for entries um, to a to an anthology that we, as you mentioned in, in the introduction, would explore both the, the current realities in Gaza, but also um, what Palestinians in Gaza really dream about um, the future and 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 in the hopes that their writing about that would give a more complex um, view of Gaza for, for people who read the book so that um, you would you would begin to see um, uh, just the richness of of life experiences and and um, and dreams <laughs> that Palestinians in Gaza have. So um, that's I think was was the beginning and what what ended up to be I think a very special book. Thank you for all of that and yes a very very special book. Thank you. So, Dorama, I want to I want to turn to you next. Um, you have a an essay in here called "The Haze of Fifty One Days," uh, in which you recount the last time you were in the Gaza Strip, which was the the summer of twenty fourteen. Um, that was one of the only two times you've been able to return since you left in in two thousand and six. So, before we talk about the details of of that of what you wrote in in that essay. Will you tell us more, please, about your background, who you are, about your journey, 
and also about what you hope to achieve by contributing to this anthology? Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak about my contribution and the wonderful project that AFSC had started and is carrying on with this incredible anthology. Uh, so as you've mentioned, I've left the Gaza Strip in 2006. At the time, I was 16 years old. And sometimes I joke with my parents that I've been away from home more than 50% of my life. I am currently 33 years old and I've only managed to return home just a couple of times over the years. Uh, and you know, when the opportunity arose to contribute to this particular anthology, I was confronted with, with, with two minds, if you will, about what I should write. I had spent much of my time abroad pretty much pursuing an education in international politics, communications, journalism, my graduate work focused on international law, I was pretty much heavily focused on Palestine as this political question. Uh, when I returned home in the summer of 2014, that experience was confronted by the reality of brutal warfare and, and the assault that we've all witnessed that Israel has exacted on the Gaza Strip at the time, uh, which to me made it necessary more so to contribute in a human interest fashion, if you will. And that was essentially the story that I contributed in the haze of 51 days. It really just sort of an account of my time returning to the Gaza Strip after being away for so long and navigating a lot of experiences uh, with my family at a time of war. Thank you so much. That's great. Um, thank you for all of that. Thank you. So Jihad, turning to you, um, the foreword to the book, which uh, you you and Mike and Jennifer co-authored, co um, it includes these lines. Now I'm quoting, for change to occur, Gaza must be understood as an integral part of historic Palestine. There can be no meaningful or sustainable resolution in Palestine and Israel without Gaza. Will you please unpack that for us? Say more about what you mean and, and how this idea anchors and frames what you and, and the editors and the editorial committee want to achieve with this book. Thank you, Sarah Ann, and um, it's a pleasure to be joining Durham and Jennifer uh, today. Um, this quote um, probably sums up the entirety of the project. Um, and of, of writing about Gaza, of talking about Gaza, this, this anthology project as an attempt to um, break the intellectual and cultural blockade that Israel has imposed on Gaza as part of its broader project to isolate Gaza, um, to, fragment Ga to fragment the Palestinian people by building fences, walls, and by uh, broadening the distance between Palestinian communities. And this exact um, line that you just read speaks to the failure of um, uh, the, the politics that have surrounded the Palestine question in general. Um, and, you know, the peace process in particular and other approaches to the situation in Palestine, uh, that approaches that have actively dismissed Gaza, 
that um, basically rendered Gaza um, as a question to be dealt with later, um, that normalized the exclusion of Gaza and of Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinians from Gaza, um, from current conversations about the reality in historic Palestine, um, about the future um, of uh, Palestine and the Palestinians, the peace process, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, so this project was just one attempt to challenge this marginalization of Gaza, this um, attitude that seeks to um, uh, forget about Gaza and, and render Gaza invisible. Um, and of course, it also shows that without Gaza, there can't be uh, a way forward because Gaza has played an important role uh, in the Palestinian story. Gaza is an integral part of the Palestinian story. And there are 2 million Palestinians of Gaza who who, whose voices matter, whose stories matter, and um, there can't, we can't imagine the future. We can't think about the future of justice and equality um, in that part of the world with, without thinking about Gaza and incorporating Gaza in these conversations. Thank you so much for that. Um, you're so clear and 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 concise and compelling on on this uh, exact topic, which I we've talked about before. And um, and I really appreciate that you just said that 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 this idea that that um, Gaza is inseparable from the rest of Palestine that this that this is really the, the heart of the book. Um, and I want to encourage the audience. You and I did a, a had a conversation, a one on one conversation, in which we went in depth about Gaza just a few months ago. Um, and my colleague will put that in the chat. I want to encourage everyone to 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 listen to you as much as they can, um, and even more. And and luckily, you and I have recorded a little bit, um, so you can hear more. But I, but now I want to actually invite you to say more in this conversation right now, Jihad. Um, and let's talk a little bit more about the anchoring of the book. So the book opens, there's the foreword, and, and then you actually wrote an introduction, an introductory essay. And you write in that essay about the importance of understanding the historical context of the Gaza Strip. And you say, it is impossible to understand the Palestinian people overall and the Gaza Strip without understanding the historical context. What is that historical context? Now I'm quoting you, the central element in understanding the historical context of the Gaza Strip and its current reality is the 1948 Nakba. So please talk to us about the Nakba and its specific relevance for the Gaza Strip. Uh, of course, uh, I, I think uh, it is difficult to make sense of Gaza's current reality and think about its future. Uh, without understanding the, the, the Nakba, the catastrophe that befell the Palestinian people um, uh, due to the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, following um, the uh, conquest of Palestinian land and the expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, uh, it is not possible to understand Gaza, but it's also it's it, it's not possible to understand um, the reality in Palestine and the Palestinian experience um, without understanding the Nakba. And when I talk about the Nakba here, I'm not talking about 
an event um, from the past that is relegated to um, a museum of ideas. Uh, no, it's it's. Uh, I'm talking about the Nakba as a process that um, started in before and during 1948 and continues until the present day. It's the process of uh, erasure, a process of uprooting an entire people from their land uh, with the use of force, uh, expelling them from pro their property and uh, denying them their, the, the right uh, to self-determination, uh, denying them the right to nationhood denying them um, the right to live um, in peace and in dignity in their historic homeland. So for me, as a Palestinian who grew up in Gaza and who uh, lived there for uh, most of his life, um, it is Im impossible for me to think of a way forward without considering this process, the Nakba, as a process that continues until the present day and its physical manifestations um, uh, an impact on Palestinian life. Um, and, and I think the most important issue here, uh, uh, especially when we're talking about Gaza, is the question of the refugees. Uh, the Gaza Strip is home to uh, more than 2 million Palestinians, 70% of whom are refugees. They live in the world's um, most densely populated uh, or one of the most densely populated uh, areas. And um, there is no conversation about the future of those people. What's going to happen to them? Uh, where are they, how and where are they going to live? What kind of uh, environment they're going to live? And Palestinians have anguished in Gaza since 1948 in eight refugee camps um, that are almost impossible to live in. And so, so this is just one example. And of course, when it comes to the Palestinian experience, um, understanding this the, the Nakba as a process that continues until the present day and will continue if not stopped, um, if not brought to an end, you know, through organizing, through political work, through challenging uh, the, the structure of the occupation and ethnic cleansing that has been in place. So uh, I can take hours and hours to unpack this, but I really encourage um, the audience to read more about how Palestinians reflect on the question of the Nakba and its continuation, and what it will take for us to put an end to that process. Um, so the refugees is one aspect, but there are many other aspects that I talk about in the introduction that show um, how the Nakba continues to affect Palestinian lives in Gaza and elsewhere, and why it is imperative to challenge this process and put an end to it. Great, thank you, Jihad. So on, on this theme of uh, the ongoing role of the Nakba and um, the Nakba and its, and its continuity, its continuance. So Doram, in, in your essay, um, you tell a story of what happened in 2014. Your brother's home, which is next door to your parents' home, was struck by an Israeli missile, um, a, a door knock or a roof, a roof knock missile. Um, which you can, you'll talk about, and you and your parents and, and your sisters and family, you were all staying in, your, in your, your parents' home, your family home, and you began to evacuate out of caution. Um, and you tell the story of your mother and your sisters have a particularly interesting exchange around jewelry and around the deeds to land. 
around land. So I want to ask you, and um, and and picking up on exactly what you what you told us before that you went through a transition, and now you're telling this this human story as a way of of illustrating what you used to talk about from a specifically from a perspective of of law and policy. Tell us this human story. Tell us tell us the meaning behind it. So tell us about this exchange and what it means, and and why it was so important for you to include this particular exchange in the anthology. Thank you so much. I think this is actually a wonderful question to follow up uh, after what Jihad illuminated for us in terms of the ongoing process of the Nakba and its manifestations that are felt today among Palestinians, certainly among the Palestinian refugees in the Gaza Strip. Uh, in terms of a story, I mean, this, this was quite a harrowing experience. Uh, what happened is that my brother's house next door to ours received what Israel refers to as a roof knock, uh, which if, if anybody is familiar with this terrible phrase, it means that it's a warning shot for what would have been a much, a much bigger missile uh, targeting a given site uh, for whatever reason. Uh, now, fortunately for us, I should I should note that, you know, that bigger missile never followed, but that roof knock did happen and we felt the need to evacuate and we were just, you know, rushing through to make it happen. Uh, I have a paralyzed father. My mother is blind. My two sisters were freaking out. I was freaking out and terrified for our lives as well. Uh, and But I remember this exchange very vividly. And, you know, sometimes I bring it up to my mother and we kind of laugh about it. But I think to us and to me, especially it highlighted the the critical question that underpins the, the the historic trauma and injustice that Palestinians are, are are enduring, which is the question of land. We were all in the car and my sister had asked my mother if she had packed our land deeds and the valuables. Uh, and, you know, Jihad could probably relay a similar experience with prior Israeli assaults on the Gaza Strip. Most families, when there is an assault by Israel in Gaza, tend to pack their valuables and their land deeds and their official paperwork and everything in the event that they need to evacuate, in the event that their home is, uh, is is struck by a missile, just because they've learned over the years that this is the appropriate practice to do. And unfortunately, we do not have shelters in the Gaza Strip, nor could you shelter really anywhere from Israeli fire. Uh, so my mom had these bags uh, prepared well in advance, uh, but for some reason, she only picked up the land deeds uh, to, to, to my family's lands, not only in the Gaza Strip, but also throughout historic Palestine. Uh, my family owns land in historic Palestine that I was never allowed to go see. It is currently occupied into what has become modern day Israel uh, and, and the other valuables. So my sister just has this funny exchange, very, very quick exchange with my mother where she goes like, did you pick up the land deeds and the valuables? My mom says, yes, I picked up the land deeds only but not the valuables. My sister runs out of the car, picks up the valuables and comes back. Uh, it makes me laugh these days when I think about it. But you know, even at that very harrowing moment on our mind was that question of land. And we all know what the logic of Zionism is, has been exposed over the years. Expand into as much land as possible with as few Palestinians as possible. So for many refugees and many Palestinians, that question of land, even in the thick of it all, remains very, very critical. And I think, you know, just following on, following up on what Jihad said, it's, it's a crucial one because to date, 70% of the population in the Gaza Strip is not able to exercise their right of returning to their rightful land where they could exercise uh, their, their freedoms and live with dignity and prosperity uh, as they should.
thank you for all of that. Um, Jennifer, so here we have Doram telling us about his his story and his essay, and which is extraordinary. And I want to ask you how you and the other editors chose the essays that you included in this book, and um, and ask you about both the the challenges that you faced in collecting the essays and in publishing the book, and also some of the high points of your experience from the view of the the editorial team. Please, yeah. Thank you, Sarah-Ann. Um, so we we really, as I said earlier, we really wanted a diversity of experiences to be included in the book and, and ideas about the future to, uh, we, we had hoped that writers would really talk about not just the indignities of daily life, but also like, how do they envision a time when this Nakba ends? You know, how, how, you know really talk about their dreams. And and I, I remember that not being an easy task for a lot of the writers, um, even after they'd submitted their ab abstracts. Um, um, but I do remember early on one of the writers actually sending us a note saying thank you, um, that it's we were the first people ever, even though he's published a lot about Palestine and a lot about Gaza, we were the first people to ask him about what his dreams might be. He's like, we just are never asked about what we think. <laughs> uh, so I um, I remember that. Um, and I think that that was um, a real affirmation to, to keep on with this project because um, it was hard. Uh, it, COVID was hard, <laughs> is hard, <laughs> um, but uh, it's hard to communicate across the ocean. and particularly with people who are living in a regular crisis, uh, even not having regular access to electricity. Uh, so um, I think it's kind of ironic that the, the deadline for our book was to be finished in May of 2021. Uh, and if people on this call remember, um, those 11 days in May of 2021 were, were horrific. And, and all of us, all the editors on our editorial team just put the book aside uh, and just said, we, we have to prioritize joining in protests and advocacy efforts, and um, we have to push for a ceasefire. But we also stayed in touch with the writers um, and to make sure that they were safe. And, and I think for us on the editorial team, that was, it was kind of a different experience. You know, it's a different experience to witness a huge, massive military assault on a captive population when you actually know the people that are there, you know, that um, you, you know, and you've been reading about their dreams, you know? So I think that that was a real profound and also, um, yeah, meaningful, but also challenging. I think we were lucky to have publishers like Haymarket Press who said, you know what, take an extra few months. <laughs> you know, they gave us a little more time to, to finish the copy so that we weren't having um, to say, um, hello, can you look at those footnotes one more time? And <laughs> can you check this source? Like, but you don't want to be asking those questions when people are being bombed, you know? 
so I, I think, um, yeah, that was that was definitely one of the the big challenges, but also, um, yeah, fortunate for the for the flexibility. Um, I think that for anyone who works on a book project, one of the like most high points is when you actually hold the book in your hand, you know, when you see like this thing that you've been working on uh, is actually in print. Um, but I think for for all of us um, to a person, the excitement came when we saw people in Gaza holding the book um, because it's not easy to, there's no mail system. You can't mail books to people in Gaza. Um, we had to ask friends who were in Palestine to bring it in and um, just to see them holding it, and um, for I, I think for all of us, that was that was really a, a high point of the process. Great, that's great to hear. Thank you, Doram. I want I want to come back to you, thinking about um, what Jennifer just said of the of the of the book making its way into Gaza and and of of Palestinian stories traveling the world. So. You in in your essay, you talk about how difficult it was to be back in Gaza in the summer of 2014. You were there for the the, the bombardment for the war, um, but especially after being away for so long. So, will you talk to us about this very unique and specific, but also shared experience of being from Gaza and and leaving it, and with this question of of trying to go back and and your essay wonderfully includes different conversations you have with your siblings about choosing to return or not and, and what's at stake in doing that. And also the difficulty of the journey itself. Um, I'd love to ask you to talk about that aspect of your experience and, and if you could also maybe talk about how it connects you or, or doesn't to other Palestinians. Right. So the, this actually, my, my trip to Gaza in the summer 2014 began from Cairo, uh, where I was spending the summer vacation uh, from graduate school. Uh, and I was uh, doing my master's program at the Graduate Institute of International Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. And I'd returned for the summer to the region with the hope that my parents and my siblings in Gaza would come and meet us in those of us. Uh, I have a couple family in Cairo uh, for that time. Unfortunately, that was not possible. My, my mother was a little bit sick and ultimately she said that uh, the, the trouble of the journey from, from Gaza to Cairo would not be best fit for her. So I decided to actually go into the Gaza Strip to see my parents. And that was one of the two times I, I did that over the years. <clears throat> um, the journey in of itself is, is quite difficult and daunting traveling from uh, Cairo into Gaza. And this I think speaks broadly to the question of freedom of movement and how the freedom of movement of people on the Gaza Strip is really quite restricted in that respect. Uh, the Rafah crossing point is our only entry and exit, relatively speaking, uh, as opposed to another entry point and exit point that we share with Israel uh, that is quite also controlled in, in that respect and very difficult to navigate as well. Uh, when I returned home, you know, I was looking forward to being home. I hadn't been home. In, in many years. And uh, about, I think I want to say three days after I arrived, the assault 
on the Gaza Strip, uh, the, the Israeli assault on the Gaza Strip had started. And uh, initially speaking, my thinking was that this would be short-lived. Uh, Ramadan is just around the corner. I, I, was, I was imagining that it would be difficult for Israel and, and Hamas to pursue a, a large-scale confrontation uh, at the time during Ramadan. Clearly, I was wrong. Uh, and you know, the, then me and my family, we've had to endure that uh, that horrific experience uh, for for most of it. Um, and you know, when I returned and was confronted by that much violence and and the, the reality of the pain, uh, I felt a lot like survival's guilt in that respect. You know, especially for those of us who who are lucky and privileged enough to leave the Gaza Strip and pursue a life abroad, either through education or work or pursue family and marriage and all these things. So certainly I felt a bit of survivor's guilt in that respect. Uh, and I also felt somewhat of a, a stranger in my own home as well. H having been away for so many years and having navigated the question of Palestine in the classroom and in the workplace, turned out to be very, very different from actually living it in reality, uh, which is something that I grew distant from over the years. And in that way, I think I was also very lucky to have been home with my parents at that particular time, to be honest, uh, because it was somewhat of an awakening uh, and recalling that human experience uh, that I think is quite often missing from the conversation, certainly about the Gaza Strip, where everybody is reduced to a stereotypical abstract that everybody wants to analyze or discuss or opine about. Uh, and that's precisely why I opted to contribute with this human interest narrative nonfiction story about my experience and my family's experience uh, in the anthology. So these are sort of the feelings that, that I've had about being away, coming back, and then leaving again. I hope that answers your question. Yes, very, it, it, it very much answered my question, uh, and, I, and I really appreciate it. And, and I, um, building on, on what you just said about how, what it was like for you to be back there and, and be with your family. I actually want to ask Jihad to, to talk about experiencing uh, 2014 from the US. Yeah, uh, thank you for this. Um, that was my first summer uh, outside Gaza ever. <laughs> so Durgham and I, we basically uh, switched places. Um, I, I came to the US in, uh, in August of 2013 to start my PhD. And uh, of course, uh, the journey from Gaza to the US in 2013 was um, something that I don't like to think about a lot because it took months and months for me to get um, to Jerusalem, to do the visa interview at the US consulate, and then to travel through Egypt. Um, just three weeks after uh, Sisi took over um, and one week before the Rafah crossing uh, closed for for uh, many, many months. Um, and probably Durgham's entry into Gaza was um, uh, one of these unique uh, you know, uh, times when the Rafah crossing between Gaza and Egypt was open. Um, so I, I wasn't in San Francisco. Um, I, I went there to uh, attend um, a Hebrew language course uh, at the University of San Francisco. And um, on, on my second day in the Bay Area, um, I, I heard the news that this operation started. And 
as someone who witnessed the 2008-2009 attack on Gaza and the 2012 aggression on Gaza, and before that, the 2006 uh, bombardment campaign and the Second Intifada, it was um, it was one of the most painful experiences uh, for me to uh, to be in, on the phone with my parents, um, making sure that they were okay, uh, making sure that they're still alive. Uh, I, my family lives in, uh, our home is close to the buffer zone uh, to the east of uh, Dir al-Balah uh, town, the middle of the Gaza Strip. Um, so they had to evacuate. Uh, they lived near, uh, next to uh, a cookies factory and Israeli uh, forces shelled the storage facility where they store the butter and the and the ghee and the sugar and the flour uh all flammable so the whole the whole factory uh was just burning and my family um they had to evacuate and um and at some point due to the to the scale of bombardment um my my family split into two because they wanted to make sure if uh, if one part of the family gets hit, the other survives. Um, and you know, it it was it was a very traumatic experience in the sense. I mean, of course, you know, I wasn't there. I didn't experience what Durham experienced and what two million Palestinians there experienced. But um, you know, being on the phone uh, with 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 my family and hearing the sounds of explosions, with you know, talking to my friends, that was re-traumatizing in the sense that it brought back the the painful memories from 2012 and 2008, 2009, um, and just talking to you know my father who lived through many wars and witnessed many. Uh, uh, traumatizing events and for him to say that 2014 was one of the most painful experiences that he's ever witnessed in his life. Uh, my mom was in Beirut during the 1982 invasion and for her to say that even Beirut wasn't didn't feel you know like the the, the volume of of bombs that was dropped on Gaza uh, was unprecedented for her. So these are all painful experiences. These are all, um, you know, Palestinians from Gaza escape the blockade. They travel uh, to pursue education opportunities, a better life. But, you know, uh, I was talking to a friend the other day and he basically said we escape the blockade, but the blockade does not doesn't escape us. Uh, we, our family, our friends, our colleagues, our memories, our lives are still under blockade and, and they're still subject to this recurring um, cycle of, of of Israel's criminal behavior um, and, and and criminal bombardment. So um, it was definitely um, a time that uh, you know that was really painful to experience. And and let me tell you, Palestinians in Gaza just started to talk about the 2008-2009 um, events, the what Israel calls Operation Castlet. You know, on social media, just in the past couple of years, people just start talk, started talking about what it was like to experience the attacks, what it was like to, you know, go through these things. But, and, you know, people still haven't dared to touch the subject of 2014 because of how traumatic it was, the scale and intensity of that, uh, of, of those weeks.
so yeah, I mean, you know, it was it was difficult. Um, so and, and and it's a conversation that we as Palestinians from Gaza are having, you know, about individual emancipation, individual survival, and and you know, like we we can leave, but it's it's a reality that um, you can never ignore, you can never uh, forget about, and that's why we're doing the work we're doing. That's why we're 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 here with you today, because we believe that this has to come to an end. And it is really a privilege to get to hear this internal conversation and to get to hear you talk about the the questions and the and the conversations that Palestinians from Gaza are having amongst themselves, amongst yourselves, um, and and to hear this being both outside and inside in the time of bombardment and also how bombardment and the the ongoing trauma of it. Um, Jihad, I want to ask you. Well, I want to say thank you for sharing with us that uh, Palestinians are now talking about 2008-9 and talking amongst themselves this this way that you described this conversation about individual emancipation and relationship to, to the to the collective and to and to what's what's back home is um, really interesting and powerful to hear. And and I so I want to I'm going to ask Doram, I'm going to ask you another question and Jihad, I'm going to ask you another, then a follow up also on, a, on another um, theme that that came up in the writing, which is. Um, so Doram, you, you talk about your father, you write about your father in your essay and and there's palpable tension. You describe an actual fight that the two of you have um, or an argument, I should say, um, and your father represents a different generation and in a different mindset in some respects. And so I want to ask you about your choice to include that in this anthology, um, written in English, written for an international audience about Gaza, uh, about, talk to us about some of the tensions and how you're interpreting or understanding these tensions and these generational differences and, and also other differences among Palestinians more broadly. Right. Uh, yes. So my relationship with my father, my, my mother, when I was younger, uh, I should say that was years ago. I'm still young. I'd like I'd like to think. But my mother has always said it, it felt like it was gasoline and fire. Uh, I had quite the rebellious teens with my dad right before I left home. Uh, I love my father, I should say. He's a wonderful man. Uh, but yes, uh, you know, in terms of the experience at that very particular time in the summer 2014 and, you know, the way of the war and the violence and the tensions and me confronting that reality uh, in a very personal and intimate way, uh, certainly, yes, there, there were tensions on a daily basis throughout our, our home with the family. And, and, and that was, I think, perfectly uh, normal and natural, just given the reality of what we were all enduring. However, with me and dad, things did escalate quite a bit, which I describe in, in the story I shared. Uh, and, you know, I'll say just this for context very briefly. Jihad had mentioned how people are just now or just a couple of years ago starting to talk about something that happened 10 years ago. For me, writing the story, it was it was almost a similar uh practice or exercise, if you will, because I actually didn't get around to say anything about that summer up until the opportunity presented itself. Even when I went back to graduate school in Geneva to finish my graduate program, I would have friends and professors approach me and say, hey, would you like to participate in a panel? Talk about your experience. You were in Gaza. And I completely said that my go-to answer was a complete no. 
because that experience was that traumatic uh, in that respect. And it took years for me to process and look back. Uh, and then when I had the opportunity to write this uh, story uh, and contribute to the anthology, that's when you know all, all of these scenes of these experiences came together. Uh, so yes, my father is certainly of a very different mindset, different generation. And I think a lot of the tensions that he and I had experienced at the time revolved around our views about the war, our views about uh, culture and politics and all these things. Uh, for example, I mean, my grandma is Egyptian. To, to my dad's side, and he's very proud of his Egyptian side. I would criticize the Egyptians quite a bit during that, during that summer because they took a particularly unfavorable view of the Gaza Strip at the time. He was not happy about that. And there were a lot of tensions around that. And I think what that, to me, what that embodied is this experience of how people these days talk about Palestine and what they are advocating for in Palestine and beyond. Uh, we are seeing greater advocacy around topics that were typically not part of the mold, if you will, so around women's rights, around LGBTQI rights, around race, around class, around all these things that are certainly a byproduct of a new generation uh, that has been part and parcel of the movement for Palestinian rights. Uh, and so I think that was sort of a source of tension uh, around there. Great, thank you. So Jihad, I want to ask you a similar question. Um, what Tell us a little bit about what you think are the urgent questions and challenges that are uh, causing debate among Palestinians. And um, that's one question, but actually we're, we're, we're still talking about the book. And so I also want to ask you how the creation and the production of the book and the campaign around it is seeking to, to address or include or, um, or surface these, these debates and challenges. Um, I mean, one of the uh, primary goals of this book was to highlight the diversity of opinions of perspectives um, in a in a place like the Gaza Strip because you know and I talk about this in the introduction Gaza is talked about in in these abstract terms um, an open air prison um, you know. Uh, uh, a place either full of heroes or martyrs or, you know, um, not even going to repeat the nasty things that are said about Gaza by uh, Israel, the, the pro-Israel crowd. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the, the Gaza Strip, like any other community on earth, like any other group of people on earth, these are two million people who have, uh, you know, different worldviews, they subscribe to uh, various ideologies, um, they have, they come from uh, Palestine's rich and diverse uh, uh, political spectrum, uh, some are on, are on the left, others, you know, are liberal, others uh, are Islamist, and even these labels um, they don't necessarily mean the same thing, you know, in, in other parts of the Arab world or, you know, uh, in other parts of the world. Um, so we tried in, in making and creating this anthology and working uh, on it, we tried to incorporate um, different perspectives and analyses. Um, and we wanted people to read um, pieces written by Palestinians from different parts of the Gaza Strip, 
who come from different class backgrounds, different, different political backgrounds, different ideological backgrounds. And, and that was very important because, you know, uh, something that, that I experienced and probably Durgham did too, um, and I'm sure Jennifer uh, witnessed that, you know, when you're a Palestinian from Gaza, you, people look at you as the representative, the spokesperson uh, of this group. And, and this is something that no one can claim to be capable of doing, representing two million people. Um, this is a rich, diverse society. And, um, and I think what, what we tried to do with the book was to highlight this diversity and richness. Um, and and that there are people there who are you know more than experts on multiple topics. Uh, and they, they are authorities, and they some of them care about culture, other care about the environment, other think about reconstruction, uh, engineering, um, artificial intelligence. People live with different priorities, but at the end of the day, the common thread, and I think this is very important when it comes to thinking about the book as. Um, as a tool also, um, uh, I'm sure we're going to re reflect about that, but maybe I'll, I'll just say it now. Um, the book is, is also a tool for us to think about Gaza as, and, to, and to reflect on, uh, on, 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 the, on the diversity of opinions, as I said, um, but also um, to, to it, 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 it goes beyond this idea of the permission to narrate. We're not asking we're narrating, we have been narrating for a very long time. It, um, it centers the, uh, these perspectives, introduces them, these analyses, perspectives, and, and tells the world here, Palestinians from Gaza have spoken. What are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about Yusuf Al-Jamal, who, um, who talks, who tells his story, um, uh, you know, about, the, the impossibility of freedom of movement and what that caused, the levels of pain. Uh, we hosted Yusuf Al-Jamal, one of the authors, on, on a speaking tour. And he told the story of his family over and over again. His, his sister who passed away because she couldn't get medical treatment, his mother who couldn't make it to her father's funeral. Uh, like all these stories, they need to be heard. But now that they're heard, um, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to normalize this reality? Are we going to, to accept that 2 million people can just live like that? So I think that's the message of the book. It's, it's also in addition to being an intellectual product that introduces us to this, um, to this fascinating world of Gaza beyond Israel's walls and fences. It also shows uh, that Palestinians in Gaza are... Um, uh, Oh, it also uh, demands action. It demands change, and it it makes us. It makes the reader immediately um, uh, a participant in this in this effort to end Gaza's isolation. Thank you for all of that, Jihad, and um, and as a reader, and and someone who is is so far from 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 Gaza physically and, and experientially, I can say that each essay is, each essay packs a punch and I, I walk away from each essay actually needing a break between essays because you, I, you have to process them and hold on to them. And what you just said about the, the, the book itself asking so much of the reader is, is true. Um, I mean, 
you don't need me to affirm the truth of it. But as a reader, I can I can affirm that that you are describing my experience in reading this book. It is um, it is truly extraordinary, and it and it is it is a demanding uh, and extremely worthwhile text. I can't say that enough. And and so actually, um, Jennifer, I want to turn to you because um, AFSC hit the ground running with this book. As we know, you AFSC organized a speaking tour to launch the publication. You and Jihad have been on the road with uh, many of your of your of your uh, contributors. Um, the book has now been in the world for about two months, I think. So, can you tell us, please, a little bit about how the book is being received? Um, what have you learned about having publication, having public conversations about mm -hmm. Gaza from this book about? amplifying voices in and from Gaza from your work on this book. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I, uh, in terms of how the book has been received, I, I, I think Jihad and I both like fell off our chairs when we saw the New York Times give a positive review to the book that was totally unexpected. Uh, we were like, oh, People are going to read this now. <laughs> I think it, maybe that's something about being uh, new to the, the to the publishing world. But um, you know, I, I think we've been so pleased, and and it's great to hear your reaction to it um, of of how much people are connecting to the book. And um, yeah, you you need to read a chapter and take a breath um, because uh, I I mean. Um, they're very powerful essays, uh, and and even the poetry that's in it, um, the photos we carefully curated for it, even though they're in black and white. Um, you know, uh, I think a lot of thought went into trying to bring the reader through um, through this journey of of meeting people from such different backgrounds. Um, you know, when Esma Abu Muzaid was on the speaking tour with Yusuf, this this fall, um, you know, so many people said, oh, I, I never really thought about how we should talk about climate crisis or climate change in relationship to Gaza. Like, I never thought about the, the agriculture and, and the history of the importance of land, like, like the Ram shared, you know, people holding on to their land deeds and, and the, cent the centering of land in the conversation. But never thought of it in the Gaza context. And that is, that is like goal achieved, you know, this is exactly what we were hoping um, would happen. And, um, you know, uh, we're preparing a study guide, it should be out um, in um, maybe by the end of the month, hopefully by definitely in January, um, that so we hope that the book will be something that reading groups will will take together. Um, we want to make it accessible to people who've never heard of Gaza. Like, what is it? What Gaza, Palestine, what's this light in Gaza? What are they talking about? Um, you know, I, I, I hope that the book is, is accessible, but, but the, I think the study guide will give other context and, and facts and, and point people into a deeper engagement. Um, and we're also going to be starting a, a webinar series in 2023 um, with all the authors. Um, you can see 
like what a treat it is to talk to Durham about his chapter and get more insights. What what beautiful writing he did. Like that's such an incredible narrative, his piece. Um, and, you know, to, to engage the other writers too. Um, in January, we're going to talk to Salem El Kudwa, who wrote about architecture and and rebuilding Gaza and what it means to be culturally sensitive and what the challenges are. Like, I hope that, you know, in the next year, we'll continue to um, have the book and the authors engaging with American audiences. Because uh, honestly, I, I just think that we have to keep Gaza in the consciousness of people who care about Palestine and care about peace in the Middle East. Um, and it can't just be when Gaza is being bombarded um, over 11 days, three days, 21 days, um, but every month, every day, every, every day, <laughs> Palestinians in Gaza are living under this blockade and siege. And we need to, to dedicate ourselves to, to hearing their voices and um, motivating, our, motivating ourselves to calling for the end of the blockade. It's terrible that there's this isolation. It's terrible that we can't visit Gaza. Look, I I want everyone that reads the book to be to, you know, to walk the sea like uh, like is described in the or to taste the the dates where Dogham and 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 Jihad's families live. Like it's 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 really a crime that um that we don't have that access um and we need to demand it for ourselves. And for our elected officials, the, the fact that there haven't been any U.S. officials visit Gaza is unthinkable. Like with all the military aid that we give and the weapons that are manufactured in this country that are impacting Palestinians in Gaza, um, it, it's just it, it needs to be on the policy agenda as well um, for more people to go and to see these realities and to be motivated to change policy. Thank you for, for all of that, Jennifer. So um, I, I, I just want to review and summarize for, for our audience. So um, you're creating, AFSC is creating a study guide, which you will share. You have the website Gaza Unlocked, uh, which we put a link to in the chat, um, and we'll have a link to, which has a lot of resources on Gaza. You are going to launch a webinar series with all of the authors so that uh, your audiences will have a, more of a chance to interact with them directly. Um, and hopefully after the audience has read their essay and can ask specific questions and learn from each of these people. Um, and, and all of this is, is about keeping Gaza on people's minds, not just when there's an emergency or, or a heightened acute emergency, um, but but all the time, because there are 2 million Palestinians living under these conditions who, who there's a lot to say about the conditions Palestinians are living under. But the point that that you have each made so beautifully in the book is about um, actually relating to to the dreams and the memories and the imaginations and the imagined futures of these 2 million Palestinians in, in Gaza. So, Jennifer, let me just did I did I get everything? Is there is there anything else that you want our audience to know that they can do to, to take advantage of the, the resource of, um, of this book? Um, I'll, I'll defer to Shahad, but I, I do think that, that you covered it all. Like, um, I think, uh, you know, 
uh, people have talked about ordering the book and getting it into their libraries, their local libraries. Uh, and I, I think that's a great idea. I think it's a great idea to, um, we presented a copy to um, our Senator on the, on the speaking tour, the, the, uh, the writers went and, and talked to um, a US Senator about the book. You know, I think that there are a lot of ways that we could use this resource. Um, and, you know, we look forward to, you know, having more Palestinians from Gaza included in, in webinars and conversations and for people who travel to the Middle East to make more of an effort um, to try to break the, the isolation of Gaza and connect with Palestinians there as they do in Jerusalem and, and other parts of historic Palestine. Great. Thank you for all of that. And I should say that um, FMEP, the Foundation for Middle East Peace, is very much on board with uh, the, the, the mission of amplifying Palestinian voices and, and also specifically voices from Gaza. And, um, and I'll just add that we did a webinar, I think last year, that was about climate change. And uh, we had a, a scholar from Gaza on who was a young scholar, and it was absolutely wonderful. And it's a great conversation. And exactly as uh, you and, and Jihad, you were talking about, or I think you both were talking about, when you're talking about topics that aren't the usual topics people are focused on on Gaza, um, it is so enriching and illuminating to speak with people in Gaza and scholars and experts and authorities from Gaza about these issues. Um, so just, we are, we're, we're, we're just about to close. So I, I want to turn to you, uh, Doram, one one last time and just to ask you if there's something else you wanna tell us about the unique role of, of Gaza and Gazans in the movement for Palestinian freedom. Uh, that's a terrific question. I, I think I would take a step back and perhaps unpack the word unique. I don't think it's necessarily unique. Uh, I think you know the, the role of everyone who is Palestinian or identifies with the cause of justice, peace and stability and dignity and basic human decency, just to be frank, uh, you know, uh, would would see the reality and advocate to change it in a positive manner. I think the question, uh, I would probably phrase it differently and say, making it more equitable for Gazan voices to actually be presented and actually be heard and actually be, you know, listened to. Uh, we've witnessed, and Jihad probably could speak to this over the past, I want to say, two decades probably just and even prior but more intensely in the past two decades just the complete dismissal of the Gaza Strip from the conversation altogether even at the highest policy levels I mean you look at state department statements you look at the United Nations you look at the EU look at, at other international actors Gaza is almost always an afterthought but anyone who is uh, you know rational and, and reasonable about approaching this understands that there just isn't going to be moving forward without taking fully into account the Gaza Strip and the grievances of people in the Gaza Strip, primarily the refugees who have every right to return to their rightful lands. Uh, and that's where the crux of, of the problem is. So yeah, I, I would emphasize equity more so than uniqueness, because I think ultimately every Palestinian, wherever they are, whoever they are from all walks of life, uh, certainly have the right to speak up and, and advocate for their human rights and, and their rights, generally speaking. Uh, and Gaza just needs to be have that room more equitably than it has in the past. Terrific. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and Jihad, I want to offer you 
the, the last words um, on this on this webinar, if you want to say something to us about something more about the use of this book as a tool in the world and and, and about this political project. Thank you, Sarah. And I, as I said, the, this book was um, just one humble attempt to challenge the intellectual and cultural blockade that has been imposed on Gaza. Um, it shows that, um, you know, Palestinians in Gaza are, are there, they're ready to, to be heard, they're ready to be part of these conversations. They're no less experts than, you know, these um, non-Palestinian voices that are given uh, the platform to talk about Palestinians, reduce them and reduce their experiences. Um, you know, how many times we watch CNN uh, during this um, uh, seasonal bombardment campaigns and, uh, and, and other media outlets and you know, it's been a struggle just to have Palestinian voices appear on on uh, on these media outlets. Um, so think about the larger conversations about the past, the present, and the future. Think about conversations about you know uh, the environment, global warming, agriculture, refugees, migration, um, the refugee crisis across the Mediterranean. Um, you know, population density, uh, resources, food security, food sovereignty. These are all issues and themes that concern Palestinians in Gaza, like they concern, pe you know, people all over the world. Um, and Palestinians in Gaza, they, uh, they have been forgotten. They have been sidelined uh, uh, in, 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 the, in the circles, the traditional circles where these conversations about Palestine and Israel happen in the U.S. and beyond, um, and and I think you know this was part of uh, direct or indirect conscious or unconscious effort that normalized and accepted the blockade. And I think that's that's a huge mistake and it's it's a crime against Palestinians in general and those in Gaza in particular. So the book shows that. Um, you know, Palestinians are ready to talk and they are, they're speaking, they're talking to us, they're sharing, they're talking about their experiences and they're demanding action, they're demanding change and they're willing to be part of that change. And they are part of that change. You know, if you look at the majority of all the authors of the book, these are people who um, had very difficult lives. They had challenging lives. And despite that, they excelled at what they do. They managed to, um, you know, get published in prestigious publications. Um, they managed to uh, study languages. We, most of, all of the chapters except one, we received in English. Um, and, and more than half of the authors were never published in the English language before. So I, I think, you know, this book shows that there is no excuse. There is no excuse not to communicate with Gaza, not to open channels with Gaza, not to hear Palestinians there and, 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 um, and not to approach them and include them and make sure that they are present in these conversations. And if we can't go to Gaza, you know, we live in the, 20, uh, in the 21st century. We can still, you know, have um, direct lines of communication with people there and invite them to our events, to our circles and hear from them. Um, and I think, you know, and it's, and it's also 
um, a, a reminder for those who organize delegations and go to Palestine and, you know, uh, even, you know, well-intentioned solidarity activists. It's a message for them. Do not forget about Gaza. If you want to show solidarity with the Palestinian people, if when you organize a delegation that only goes to the West Bank and, ha and, and, and doesn't mention Gaza on the itinerary, you're contributing indirectly to the blockade and to the marginalization of Gaza. Add Gaza on the itinerary, even if you can't go. Connect the, the, the visitors with people in Gaza virtually or, you know, even by phone. It doesn't matter. What matters is the, is the, is, uh, are these gestures that challenge the fragmentation of the Palestinian people. Try to go to Ares. The, the, the checkpoint that separates Gaza from, uh, from, uh, from Israel and the West Bank. And hold a press conference there, say a few words. There are a lot of things that we can do to challenge the blockade and to tell Palestinians in Gaza that we think about them, that they're on our mind. And I think that these are, there, there are a lot of things that this book can inspire uh, in terms of action, in terms of thinking, in terms of reframing the way we think about uh, the future in that part of the world, especially from the standpoint of Gaza. And, 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 and one of the things, I'll, I'll end with that, I mean, one of the things that the book tries to address is the issue of the, 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 the practical uh, challenges that we will face um, in the next two or three decades um, concerning Gaza, the population explosion, population density, global warming, the environment, the lack of land. Um, so it's an open invitation for us to talk about Gaza and, 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 and take action. Uh, and I encourage people to join us in our work and, and work with us. And, and it's a long journey, but someone has got to do something about it. Fantastic. Thank you. It's an open invitation and a really powerful invitation that you just issued. So thank you so, so, so much. Thank you to all of you. Thank you to Doram and to Jennifer and to Jihad for today's beautiful and, and rich and challenging in, I think, the best ways conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who listened, uh, who joined this event, who is listening to this event. We are so glad and grateful to get to share this conversation with you. Um, I want to encourage you to please check back at the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, for a list of, of resources relating to this conversation uh, and for announcements of upcoming events, webinars, and podcasts. Thank you all very much. Until next time. Thank you. <laughs>